Tēnā koutou katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lento Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Arlberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makaura, Auckland. Tēnē kamihi ke te mana, whenua o Aotearoa and we acknowledge the local tribal authorities of New Zealand. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Durrambul country in Queensland. Before we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. The Lento Intervention is an Australasian educational and advocacy platform dedicated to raising awareness about the current climate and health crisis. And on this podcast, we invite guests to chat about topics that will inspire you to take action to improve your own health and the health of the planet. So please subscribe to and share this podcast and visit our website for the full show notes. And don't forget to buy us a coffee if you'd like to support our work. It has been a small while since we've had a focused discussion on personal health, but we're going to make up for it starting with this episode. Plus, our guest for this episode is also going to be one of the leading experts on whole food plant-based eating that will be presenting at the Nutrition in Healthcare Conference, hosted by our friends at Doctors for Nutrition in Melbourne, 17th to the 19th of February, 2023, and we'll have the link to register in our show notes. That's right. So today we're very fortunate to be sitting down for a chat about all things kidney health with Dr. Anis Taid, a nephrologist, a GP, as well as a board certified lifestyle medicine physician. Originally working in Melbourne, he now works in beautiful Fiji as the director of the Fiji National Kidney Centre and is head of nephrology at Fiji's largest public hospital. So we're very much looking forward to seeing you back in Oz in Feb for the conference, but in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, we had a bit of a comedy of error with time zones and unsure of where we were all at and, and getting our, our wires crossed. Uh, but, Anise, you're in Fiji. Uh, we need to backtrack and, and learn a little bit about how you got to Fiji. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, um, yeah, and that tongue twister that tripped uh, Emma up a little bit, nephrology and what that is all about so sure so uh yeah so i was born and raised in papua new guinea but moved to australia when i was in my teenage years and um pursued medical school in tasmania actually so a big climate change from warm papua new guinea in the pacific and down to cool cool tasmania um but i so i did my my university there medical school training and then uh pursued uh, working life really in Melbourne, and that's where I um, uh, did my physician training. And I'll correct you, Emma. Sorry, I'm, I'm a nephrologist and a general physician, not a ge- general practitioner. Slight Ooh, technical difference. <laughs> no worries. So, general physician is a sort of jack of all trades for medical specialists. So, you might see a cardiologist for your heart, you might see a nephrologist for your kidneys, and you might see a general physician who should be competent in a bit of everything. Um, and so I did that, that training. And then during my general physician training, uh, I was really encouraged to try and pick an area of, of, of expertise. And I thought, well, I was kind of interested in multi-system disease or diseases that affected lots of different parts of your body. Hence why I was interested in being a general physician and kidney diseases. It's often kind of kidneys are usually the bystanders. They get affected by other things going on. And there's a lot of diseases that affect um, affect the kidneys that affect other parts of the bodies. Um, and with my interest in nutrition, that kind of lended itself really well into kidney disease, as opposed to the other areas of medicine that I was considering. So after a bit of um, soul searching, I guess, I wound up in kidney health. And then uh, once I finished my training, pretty much in the last year, my wife was eager to get out of Australia, do something different. Um, she's an Australian, Tasmanian actually, and uh, she'd always had aspirations to live elsewhere in the world and experience somewhere other warmer. things. <laughs> yeah, somewhere warmer. <laughs> She'll admit that is definitely high on her priorities. And, um, and, you know, having grown up in the Pacific, I was keen to get back there. Um, and I guess more broadly, you know, there's a lot of nephrologists in Australia and there is a need elsewhere in the world to provide expertise. And so we went looking and, you know, as, as things have it, stars aligned and, and Fiji was looking for a nephrologist at the exact same time I was looking to go somewhere. Um, there's very few specialists, 
medical specialists throughout the Pacific. You get a lot of general physicians who do everything, but actually specialists who have um, expertise, there's not that many across the, across the Pacific. So it was a, kind of a, yeah, a fluke or you know, maybe something more that I wound up here. So been here for about three years. Hmm. And I mean, you're very passionate about the benefits of plant-based nutrition for kidney health and, and of course other aspects of health too. Um, but out of interest, how did you start on that journey towards being an advocate for plant-based diets? Because, you know, it's, it's becoming more accepted now, but it's not exactly mainstream within the medical community yet. Yeah. So my story with plant-based diets really is a, a bit of a long one. So you'll bear with me. So it actually starts with my grandfather. So, um, I've got uh, Persian heritage. My, grand, my, my dad's side is uh, from Iran, and he was the only other medical doctor in the family and still remains that the case. So he graduated in medical school in Tehran in uh, 1949, and he had a keen interest in nutrition. In fact, his thesis at, at the end of his medical school in 1950 was titled The Prevention of Disease Through Diet. So uh, a bit of a trailblazer you know, a long time ago that he was discussing this sort of topic. And actually, in his first um, outposting as a medical doctor, he uh, was in rural Iran and he uh, was already start starting to deal with some of the issues that we see nowadays. So he noticed that people in rural Iran who were living on very simple foods had a much lower incidence of chronic disease compared to those who were living in the more industrialized Tehran, even industrialized even back then, 70 years ago, uh, or bit, which was already becoming westernized at that time, I guess. So he had a, this keen interest, and the interest really stems from uh, a, a personal or religious belief in, in our family. We, we're, uh, he, he was a, an adherent to the Baha'i faith, and, and um, although there's no specific school of nutrition really advocated in the Baha'i faith, or, or no one's forced to do anything with their diet, there is some sort of principles and teachings that he took up um, uh, in his own personal practice. And there's you know, those writings as back as 1800s where uh, uh, the central figure of the faith says, you know, the food of the future will be fruit and grains. And although medical science is only in its infancy, yet it's shown that our natural diet is that which grows out of the ground. And it, it, there's other writings that talk about, um, you know, in the future, people will be able, the physicians will be able to uh, heal illnesses with foods and, um, and deal with chronic problems uh, with, with changing diet. So I guess with that background, he really was interested in nutrition. And, and throughout my childhood and adolescence, I had him in my ear, <laughs> whether you liked it or not. He was a very uh, charismatic and strong proponent of, of discussing diet with anyone who sort of crossed his path. Um, and I remember even as a child, he would draw grains of rice and tell us about the, the, the outer layer of the grain and how you know, polishing that outer layer, you lost all the fiber, etc. But despite him in my ear, I, I continued to eat a, a um, standard westernized diet throughout my adolescence and through medical school. Um, but th the second thing that happened to me, I guess, was that my father was diagnosed with diabetes. Um, he didn't really inform us of this. Um, I later found out a bit uh, you know, how long he had really had it. But when it came time that he was recommended to start insulin, he, um, you know, he was really unwilling. And so he too also started to listen to his father's advice, even later in life than I did, um, and made big changes, lost a lot of weight, uh, went completely plant-based and eventually reversed his diabetes and, and didn't require any, any therapy at all. And so I guess the combination of those two things in my first year of medical residency, I thought, well, I should really look into this a bit more, um, not only from my grandfather's advice, but I've seen it now in, in practice in my own father's um, life. And so uh, I spent a lot of time, I guess I first read the China study with my wife. She quickly became vegetarian. I was, took a lot longer. I felt I really needed to delve deeper. Um, and so I took another year of reading, just, you know, studying medical literature as far as I could anything I could find really. And then eventually thought that, well, there's really something to this. And if I'm going to ask patients to do it, then I really have to do it myself. So over the next few years, I sort of transitioned slowly to, to being as plant-based as I could be. Sorry, a long-winded answer, but a bit of a, uh, a different story than you might hear. So a question on your upbringing, because you talk about uh, 
you know, despite the influence of the voices in your head <laughs> from your mm-hmm. father, um, but the influence of the Western diet, we, we know in Australia, New Zealand, Western diet, typical meat, dairy, fish, etc. cetera. Uh, but Papua New Guinea, what, what's, what's the, the, the typical, I, I, I presume, like a lot of other small Pacific nations, there would have been a massive transition in what, 40, 50 years toward it eating more, consuming more of the, the animal-based products um, and therefore health-related issues also kind of escalating as well, similar to what you would have read in the China study and so on. And I mean, did, thinking back or looking back, do you think that's the case as well there? Or Yeah, I think across the Pacific, so in Papua New Guinea, and I, and I think the same could be said for Fiji, is that you know the more rural you go and the more further back in time you go, you see more traditional, simple eating, eating from the land and in the coastal areas in Fiji and coastal areas in Papua New Guinea, eating from the sea. Um, but you know a lot of it is based on root crops and, and simple vegetables that they grow. Uh, that's really the staples. Um, but as, as you've just said, um, you know, as uh, Western influence has become increasing, um, and other social factors, including uh, poverty and other things. There's, a, I guess, there's a lot of influences, but the, the, the pattern of eating, especially in the cities where larger groups of the population is becoming sort of drawn to, um, the eating is now becoming more processed, tin, uh, tin fish and tin meat and a lot of, uh, you know, in Fiji here, there's this, these breakfast crackers that people eat for breakfast almost universally. Um, uh, and a lot of more animal products are, uh, you know, getting into the diet. Yeah. Even though there's a real abundance of, you know, we go down to the markets, all the markets have an abundance of fresh fruit and vegetables, really fantastic stuff. But, uh, but you don't see as many people eating from there that, as you would have hoped. So let's let's talk about our beautiful little bean-shaped organs. Um, talk to us about kidneys. What's the main function of them? Why are they so important? Yep. So you've got uh, most people have two kidneys, and they're the, at the back of your abdomen, uh, your tummy, and uh, they each have about one million units called nephrons. So these little units in each kidney do filtering. So you can think of the kidney really as a giant filter. Um, so all the blood flows, you know, throughout your body all the time, and it all passes through these two kidneys. And the purpose of the kidneys really is to filter. So it, anything that the body doesn't need, it should excrete, um, get you know, pass into your urine. So these are toxins and waste and byproducts, um, and any excess salts and electrolytes like potassium and phosphate and and other things are excreted into your urine every day. And excess fluid. If you drink two liters of water. Um, Anything you don't need, we pass out in urine. And you might, you know, you'll notice that with uh, how dark or light your urine is each day. And that's how concentrated things are. Um, and so they're really a vital organ. They, they maintain uh, what we call homeostasis, a balance of a lot of key electrolytes and acid. Um, they also produce a few hormones, helps to maintain our blood count. Um, uh, yeah, so a very vital organ that a lot of people, I guess, don't don't think of as the some of the you know the top three or four organs in your body and uh, a bit of a random question but how how crucial is it to have two because you do hear of of um you know kidney donors and so on and uh, do those people with one uh kidney function just as well or uh, is there reduced in functionality why do we have two (laughs) yeah so you can uh you can live quite healthily and happily with just one kidney i mean i think you need to be a little bit more careful with your life choices and protect that kidney. So when someone donates their kidney, uh, their kidney function in, in total on blood tests do, does reduce in the days uh, immediately, immediately after the surgery. But within a few days or a week or two, you start to see that the single kidney that you have left really ramps up in function. So within a few weeks, uh, instead of 50 or 60% of kidney function left, you can get up to 80, 70, 80, 90%. So there is a uh, a good functional capacity there for that remaining kidney, but you don't want to overwork your kidney uh, for a prolonged period of time over many, many years or the rest of your life. It's okay if you are eating a healthy life, you know, eating a healthy diet, uh, making good lifestyle choices and, and avoid any other major diseases to that kidney, then 
you can get by. But if there are additional insults along the way, then um, you're at slightly higher risk of developing kidney disease in the long term. And on the topic of kidney disease, I mean, there's two main ones that people tend to talk about. There's an acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease. Can you explain what the differences are here and what we could maybe be on the lookout for in terms of symptoms? So acute kidney injury versus chronic kidney disease, it's really to do with timeline. So uh, there's by definition, anything, if you have uh, signs of kidney disease more than three months, then we term that chronic kidney disease or CKD. Um, if it's less than three months, um, especially if it's within days to weeks, then we term it acute kidney injury. And acute kidney injury is more in the setting of uh, other illnesses usually. So if you're critically unwell or very unwell with an infection or you're in hospital for other reasons, then it's fairly common to have the kidneys become a bit unhappy for various reasons, especially if you've got an infection. Um, and usually, I mean, I'm, I'm being very broad here, but usually for a lot of acute kidney injuries, there is the capacity to recover and, and often recover completely or relatively completely. Whereas chronic kidney disease, when it's started to be for several months or even potentially years, um, a, a larger proportion of that, that disease or damage done to the kidneys becomes more permanent. And I mean, CKD, it still remains a pretty under-recognised condition in Australia, and I would assume it's the exact same in Fiji and, and New Zealand as well. Um, and there's still, unfortunately, a lack of awareness about the disease and the risk factors within the general population. Um, just how common is CKD and, and what's the burden like on the actual community? Yeah, it's really it's really common, and, and it, I think you might find it surprising if you aren't aware of chronic kidney disease that in Australia and New Zealand and, and really internationally, the average is one in 10 people have some form or some, uh, some signs of chronic kidney disease. So that's 10% of the, the general population of the world and, and in Australia. In some, certain countries, it's higher. So in Fiji, it's up to 14% is our best uh, known data. Um, and, uh, and so that's you know, a significant proportion of the population. But the thing is that uh, most people with chronic kidney disease are unaware. So up to 90% of people who have the disease are unaware that they, they have it. Um, so that's the, the large proportion of people. And this is because you can lose up to 90% of your kidney function without developing any significant symptoms. And even when they develop, they can be quite subtle at first. So you can get down to 10 or 15% of ki kidney function and have no significant symptoms and be unaware of it. The, sim the symptoms when it first starts can be things like just feeling generally fatigued, not having as much energy, being you know, losing your appetite a bit. Um, and as the kidney function gets really low down to you know, less than 10%, more prominent symptoms start to develop, uh, nausea and vomiting. Um, people often develop swelling, a buildup of excess fluid in their body, so swelling in their legs or breathlessness. Um, and so I guess the combination of it being very prevalent and be, people being unaware of it means that there is a, you know, a great opportunity to increase awareness and screening and, and intervene because we have a host of different interventions, both medical therapy, pharmacological therapy, but also lifestyle and dietary interventions that, have, uh, that can really uh, prevent the kidney disease worsening over time and, and getting to that point of kidney failure. So in terms of the causes of chronic kidney disease, what are the major ones and how much of that is lifestyle related and lifestyle can extend to a, a big proportion of eating, but also, uh, you know, tobacco use, substance abuse, uh, stress, all those, all those factors. So yeah. What, what, what are the key factors here? Um, so the two most common causes of chronic kidney disease is type two diabetes and hypertension, and that accounts for 75% of cases. So the vast majority of cases relate to diabetic disease and, and having high blood pressure. Um, and even for those who eventually develop onto end-stage kidney disease, it still accounts for a large proportion, 50 to 60%. So those are people who require dialysis or kidney transplants. Most of the cases relate to diabetes and high blood pressure. And so those two conditions in and of themselves, those are diseases of lifestyle, uh, unless, it's a, unless you're a type 1 diabetic um, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure are really almost universally 
relate to lifestyle or can be significantly improved with lifestyle choices. Yeah, so the, the, the minority, the other cases are, you know, um, the genetic problems that cause cysts on the kidneys. There are a number of autoimmune diseases that as of yet don't have clear relation to lifestyle choices. But, you know, my personal opinion is that I think like many other autoimmune diseases, I think in the coming decades, hopefully in my life, lifetime, we'll start to see more connections to lifestyle choices and especially the microbiome and how that relates to the risks of developing these autoimmune diseases. But as of yet, most of the most of the autoimmune diseases are not clearly related to lifestyle choices. Uh, and that, that makes up the most of most of kidney diseases, diabetes, high blood pressure, autoimmune diseases and, and cystic kidney disease. And I suppose as a dietitian, I'm always going to have a bias towards diet. Um, but as a nephrologist, just how important do you think diet actually is when it comes to kidney health? Do you think that's kind of the main thing to concentrate on? Or is it a combination of all of those lifestyle medicine principles? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think diet is the biggest, biggest uh, bang for buck. Um, and I guess especially so because the, the evidence for the other lifestyle interventions is really lacking. So I don't know how much of a role it plays, exercise and you know, good sleep and other lifestyle interventions. They may well have a really important impact, but unlike diet, the evidence is lacking. So I just don't know and I can't really emphasize it as much. But certainly with diet, although the evidence in kidney disease is nowhere near as good as in cardiovascular disease and diabetes, there is a sound evidence base, a sound research base there that gives me and other clinicians a good confidence in, in making strong recommendations to patients to make dietary choices, um, to try and prevent kidney disease, to slow kidney disease progression, to prevent complications of the disease. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of impact that it can have. So let's dive into the nutrition aspect then, since there's, there's a lot of, as you say, evidence um, around surrounding that. Uh, what is it? what what does it say what what are the uh, you know we've spoken about the 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 impacts of western diet across society and and the the increasing influence it has versus the more traditional way of of uh, of uh, i guess indigenous people eating which is more plant based what are the differences how do they how do they impact us yeah so um so i guess to to begin with we have a lot of observational studies so these are studies where we track uh, populations, uh, large groups of people over many, many years, and we see who develops kidney disease over time and what were they eating. And we, we've got many large observational studies, these studies, where we see that those who are eating a more healthy plant-based dietary pattern, so those who are rich with fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and lentils, uh, they have a markedly lower risk of developing kidney disease. So from the outset, uh, eating in this way is is uh, shown to reduce your risk at least 20 to 30 percent um, compared to uh, eating a more Western or animal animal based eating pattern. Um, and that 20 to 30 percent, that, that is a statistic that is uh, despite adjust. These studies adjust for contributing factors um, like uh, weight and the development of diabetes and high blood pressure. And so that 30 percent is a real uh, underestimate uh, underestimation, if you ask me. Um, in fact, there's one, one of these large studies um, from China who followed up patients for 15 years found that those who uh, ate meat had a much higher risk of developing kidney disease. There was a clear dose-dependent association. So the more meat that was consumed on a regular basis, especially this is red meat I'm talking about, uh, the, the higher the risk of developing kidney disease. And they've noticed an inverse for plant proteins. So in fact, after some statistical analysis, they found that just replacing one serve of meat with soy or legume plant-based protein reduced the risk of developing kidney disease by 50%. That's one daily serve of meat, replacing it with soy or legumes. So a real marked risk reduction. And then I guess moving beyond just prevention of the kidney disease, those who develop kidney disease from the two most common causes diabetes and high blood pressure, we know from uh, probably a lot of your other guests and, and um, a lot of research that's been done, uh, plant-based diets and diets that are rich in these fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes 
uh, address the underlying root cause of diabetes and high blood pressure. And there's, um, there's studies from Neil Barnard that show that you can significantly improve diabetic um, disease and glycemic control or even reverse the disease altogether, which is, for example, what I mentioned earlier, which I, which I saw for myself with my own eyes with my father. And then we have more you know, local studies like the broad study done by, uh, I think, guests that you've had on this, this podcast before showing substantial weight loss uh, with plant-based diet uh, despite not calorie restricting. So we know that the diet can address diabetes and reverse diabetes, which in and itself will help prevent kidney disease. And, and for those who have kidney disease from diabetes, we know improving sugar control helps the kidney disease in the long term. It's one of the most potent things that you can do. And when it comes to high blood pressure, uh, there's a lot of good research out there to suggest that, that, diet, that what you eat it has a profound impact on blood pressure. First and foremost is salt. So salt intake is directly associated with how, high blood, how, much, um, how poorly controlled blood pressure can be and the development of high blood pressure. But beyond salt, uh, the quality of the diet, the more plant foods you have in your diet naturally has more potassium in it and you know, a host of other uh, positive factors in the, in the foods, fibers and um, uh, polyphenols that can improve blood pressure. And the best study that I'm aware of, or the one that I always talk about, is the DASH diet trials. The DASH diet was a diet that was originally designed as a vegetarian diet because um, they noticed that uh, in these observational studies, those studies of populations, that vegetarians and vegan uh, populations that ate that way had markedly lower blood pressure. So they took, uh, they designed a diet that was vegetarian. They did add a few small quantities of animal products to uh, make it more palatable is, is what, they, what they stated. Um, but uh, they then had really good randomized controlled trials with this diet. Um, the first trials found that the diet really reduced blood pressure. And then they added some salt restriction in addition. And they found that when you compare a high salt Western diet compared to a low salt DASH diet or a plant-based diet, you can get drops in blood pressure of up to nine systolic, that's the top number of the blood pressure, in people with normal blood pressure. And those with high blood pressure, you can get drops of down up to about 21 on average. So really profound effects on blood pressure just by changing how much salt you eat and how much plants you eat. So uh, hopefully that's kind of answered a little bit of the question, but we know that it, the dietary changes can affect diabetes reverse diabetes and, and, and almost reverse high blood pressure in a lot of people. You mentioned the benefits of potassium just before. Um, now, historically, diets for CKD recommended reducing potassium and potentially phosphorus as well, depending on um, blood levels, which, you know, unfortunately often resulted in people reducing their intakes of fruit and veg even further. Um, thankfully, the science is now evolving on this and, and we're getting a better understanding of the nuances of everything. Um, so the recommendations are slowly changing, but it's obviously taking its time to filter through. So what would you like patients with CKT to know about potassium and you know, phosphate on a plant-based diet? Is it safe for them? Can they do this? Yeah. So potassium is a complicated area. And, and yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of historical teaching and sort of archa archaic um, traditional uh, advice that's provided um, often by people who are not really aware of the intricacies of, of the problem. So to take a step back, so potassium in the general guidelines and general advice, the more potassium you eat is, is recommended because it improves blood pressure. Um, it, it not only helps you uh, excrete or get rid of more salt from your, in your urine and get rid of salt, excess of salt in your diet, from your, into your urine, sorry, but it also, the more potassium you consume helps to ease the tension in your blood vessels. So we know there are very potent benefits of having more potassium in your diet. Drops blood pressure, drops cardiovascular risk and risk of heart disease and heart attacks. But in kidney disease, there have been concerns. Concerns because as your kidney works less, its capacity to get rid of excess potassium from the diet uh, becomes less over time. And 
there's a concern that if there's a lot of potassium building up in the body, that could cause a rise in the amount of potassium in the bloodstream. And we know that when there's a rise in potassium in the bloodstream, there's a risk of heart arrhythmia. So the heart going into a funny rhythm and, and, um, and that can be very risky for people. And so historically, the advice has always been eat less potassium and especially there seems to be historically a focus on fruits and vegetables, as you say. And that might be because uh, there was a concern that we really wanted to make sure people were eating a lot of animal products in the past. And there was a worry that people weren't getting enough protein. But a lot has really changed um, in the last you know, number of decades. In fact, you know, this advice of reducing fruits and vegetables is really still pervasive even to this day. So I've, I've seen patients with kidney disease with scurvy. You know, they haven't had any fruits and vegetables for such a prolonged period of time because they misunderstood the advice or they were very worried about potassium intake that they'd actually developed scurvy, something that you shouldn't see <laughs> these days. Um, and so there, there is still a concern out there in, in, in the community that the, that the advice is not correct. So how do we address this these days? So in the last, in my working career, there's been a real increase in publications and a real increase in discussion about uh, the concerns with reducing fruits and vegetables because we know there's so many other beneficial uh, aspects of eating fruits and vegetables. And then there's uh, some data that's come out in the last 20 or so years showing that even if you eat less potassium, it doesn't actually change the potassium level in your bloodstream because there's a lot of other factors that change the potassium level in your bloodstream. One of which is, is acid. And I guess we, there's a whole other topic which we can get to in a second, but plant foods have a lot of alkali. So even though they have a lot of potassium, they have a lot of alkali with them. And alkali helps to shift the potassium inside cells and get it out of the bloodstream. So it's less of a concern um, to the heart. Uh, but plant foods also have a lot of fiber, uh, and we know fiber helps uh, move the bowels along steadily. And when the kidney is not working very well and not able to get rid of a lot of excess potassium, we rely on the bowels, on your gut, getting rid of that excess potassium even more so. So someone who's uh, able to move their, their stool along nicely and get rid of excess potassium in their stool tends to do better. And those who are constipating on constipated on a low fiber diet tend to be at more risk of, of getting that high potassium in the bloodstream. There's another, a few other factors that are more nuanced, but basically there's increasing recognition that, that you know, food is not just uh, one nutrient. Food comes as a package and the potassium that's in plant foods come with alkali, comes with fiber, um, the, there's other things that, you know, it often stimulates insulin and insulin helps to shift potassium inside cells. So the, the potassium in plant foods not only uh, has less concern with that rise in blood potassium, but it has all these other beneficial effects for cardiovascular health and, and reversing diabetes and helping blood pressure. And so uh, practice, I think, is changing. It's still in an area of flux and so you'll still meet many kidney specialists who who I guess don't take an interest in nutrition or are not really keeping up to date with this area and may still advise people to, to cut out fruits and vegetables or reduce. But the latest guidelines from the peak international body has, uh, has um, you know, stated that there is a lack of evidence for restricting fruits and vegetables and there is a great potential to um, improve health by promoting fruits and vegetables, even in patients with kidney disease. And what about um, phosphorus bioavailability? Is there a difference there between the animal and plant products? Yeah, so like, like potassium, the concern with phosphate is that the, the kidney is not able to excrete as much phosphate as you'd like, and patients with kidney disease tend to have a buildup of this phosphate, and, and there's worries with that because it can affect your bone health and your heart health. Um, and uh, similarly, really, in the last couple of decades, there's a recognition now that Phosphate in plant foods is bound to phytate. Phytate is this component of plant foods that we cannot digest. Humans don't have the enzyme in their gut to digest phytate. And so instead of absorbing uh, large parts of that phosphate in the plant foods, we just poo it out. 
and we don't we don't absorb it into our body. Um, whereas animal products with phosphate and processed foods with phosphate, it isn't bound to that phytate, and we more readily absorb the phosphate from those foods. So, so on average, a plant food, the phosphate in a plant food will be absorbed about thirty to forty percent. Animal food is about seventy to eighty percent, and a processed food is nearing a hundred percent phosphate will be absorbed into into your body. So patients with kidney disease where there's a real concern with phosphate intake and not eating too much, uh, recommending them to eat more plant foods and reducing animal products and reducing processed foods, you'll naturally consume less phosphate. It's, it's kind of funny because, you know, the, the main drug treatment for treating phosphate, you'll see a lot of kidney disease patients are prescribed these big whopping tablets, which are called phosphate binders. They're asked to take these binders with every meal to reduce how much phosphate they consume. But actually, nature's done it for us. There are phosphate binders in plant foods, phytate, that binds the phosphate and uh, lets, lets it just go out of your body without absorption. So hence the importance of a whole food plant-based diet and not just a uh, processed vegan diet. So, you know, it's, it's important to differentiate the two here. What about our, our obsession with protein? Um, and now I am going down the dirty road of even processed foods, added protein. It's got an extra 30 grams, an extra 25 grams of protein. Our obsession of adding protein powder to a perfectly well-balanced whole food plant-based smoothie for breakfast, but we need to add protein. How much of an impact does protein have on the, on the health of our kidneys? Yeah, so protein is, um, when we consume protein, it's broken down into these nitrogen waste products. And the kidney has the unfortunate job of having to deal with those and filter them out and, and, and excrete them into our urine on a daily basis. So the more protein you consume, uh, it's been shown to cause a higher workload for the kidneys. And this happens within a few hours. So there's studies where someone consumes uh, a protein meal um, and within three to four hours, you can see the kidney, the blood flow to the kidney and the work that the kidney is doing really ramp up. And so someone who's consuming a high protein diet, you know, meal after meal, day in, day out, will, their kidneys will basically be running, in, uh, running overtime, running at a high workload all the time. Now, in the short term, it's not a concern, but like I talked about earlier, having the kidneys overworked for many months or many years um, is thought to be detrimental, that it may contribute to the development of kidney disease, or certainly uh, if you have kidney disease, there is the, the, the concern that it will uh, worsen the kidney disease over time. Yeah. There's a few um, active uh, individuals that listen to this podcast, including myself. And I guess there's the, you know, we understand that, and I'm going to throw some figures here, and it might be dated or not, but generally we, we advise what 0.8 grams of protein per body per kg of body weight is what we consume and in a well-balanced whole food diet we're pretty much ticking that off based on our caloric intake but those that uh put their their bodies through a bit more uh activity uh strength-based or, or endurance-based athletes the the theory is that we consume we require 1.2 to 1.8 roughly grams uh per kg of body weight so now you know i guess we're burning more calories we're consuming more uh, there's a higher protein intake that goes with that. Is that directly impacting the kidneys? Because now we are consuming more protein as well. Is that going to put a bigger strain on the kidneys or not necessarily because it's still balanced with the rest of the package that we're consuming, the fiber and everything else in, in our foods? Is is that Should athletes in general be concerned that they're needing to consume more protein? Mm, good question. So, um, so yes, you're right that the minimum requirement is 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo per day. Um, and yes, the typical person who's eating a, a whole food plant-based diet usually consumes on average about 0.7 to 0.9. So right in the sweet spot. The average um, West, someone who's eating a, the average Western diet or standard, um, standard American diet or, or what you might consume on average in Australia typically consumes about 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilo per day. So about twice as much protein as is needed and, and right within the range of maybe what you just said for, that a, an athlete might, may need or someone who's, who's um, you know, trying to put on muscle mass. So your question is, someone who doesn't have kidney disease, should they be worried if they're consuming uh, 
a large amount of protein to build muscle mass or to perform in, in, in athletic um, exercises. Well, as far as I'm aware, the jury's a bit out. It's still a bit of a controversial area for those without kidney disease, whether long-term consumption of, of that sort of level where you're consuming less than 1.5 grams per kilo per day, whether it's going to have a significant impact on the kidney over many years. For someone who has established kidney disease, uh, I think although it's still, you know, you'll still find some kidney specialists who may debate it, most nephrologists would agree, and, and the, the guidelines do recommend that, um, that those with kidney disease should be having a more a minimum protein requirement. They call it a low protein diet, but it's really just normal protein intake of more closer to 0.8 grams per kilo per day. And I guess there might be a concern that if you're consuming a lot more than that, if you have kidney disease, that it may lead to a progression over, over time. Now, it gets even a little bit more complicated because there is a suggestion in some studies showing that plant proteins have less of an effect than animal proteins. But the evidence is still limited. There's good studies in animals and rats that show this, that within a few hours of, of consumption of a plant protein, um, you don't see that same ramp up of the workload of the kidney. Whereas in, if you give them a load of animal protein, you really see the, the GFR, the, 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 the work that the kidney's doing go up. Um, and there are some, some human studies also to back that up, but it's still an area that's being researched. And, and so, so official guidelines don't really to delineate the difference between plant protein and animal protein yet. But I think from what I've read and what I've understand, I would feel more comfortable if most of that protein was coming from plant protein. I would be more hopeful that that will put you in good stead in the long term, even if you are consuming an intake that is a bit higher than... Um, than necessarily recommended because you're because you're exercising or performing, um, you know, putting on muscle mass. And does that tie in with the potential renal acid load of foods? The potential difference between the animal and plant-based proteins. Yes, that's right. So one of the major concerns um, with animal protein and kidney disease is that animal proteins, the amino acids, the building blocks of those proteins are often sulfur, have a large amount of sulfur in it. And sulfur breaks down eventually to an acid in our body. And so on average, a diet that has a lot of animal proteins, meats, dairy, eggs, uh, tends to be, and processed foods, tends to be net acid producing. So someone who's eating a lot of that diet will build up uh, a significant amount of acid in their body. Whereas the opposite is the case for plant, plant foods. So plant proteins don't have that sulfur component. And not only that, fruits and vegetables have a lot of natural alkali, bicarbonate and citrate and a few other things that naturally counteract the acid that you may be consuming in the diet. So uh, instead of a Western diet being net acid producing, someone who's on a plant-based diet should be either neutral or even maybe a net alkali. And the, the reason that this isn't important is that, as I mentioned earlier, the kidney is in, involved in uh, keeping acid-base balance. So we eat food every day, we have a bit of acid, we have a bit of alkali, hopefully more of the latter. And if your kidney is not able to get rid of the excess acid that you eat in your diet, the acid can build up. And this has a range of different consequences. It's been associated with, you know, uh, with muscle breakdown, with effects on the heart, but it's also been shown to worsen kidney disease over time. So you can get into a bit of a vicious cycle where someone has kidney disease, acids building up, that worsens the kidney disease further. And there's some observational studies that show that those on a Western diet high in acid have a three times more likely risk of going on to develop kidney failure and needing dialysis or a kidney transplant. So the way that modern medicine has dealt with this is giving patients uh, sodium bicarbonate tablets. So this is tablets with an alkali. It's like it's baking powder, basically baking soda that you find in the supermarket. So our patients, unfortunately, are asked to take you know two or four tablets a day with with alkali. But we can find it naturally again in nature and in, in plant foods. And there was a nice study done uh, a few years ago, published um, the five year data just uh, a year ago, where they took a hundred patients or so 
and they were either randomized to take these sodium bicarbonate tablets, the tablets with the alkali, or just told to eat more fruits and vegetables. And over the subsequent five years, they found that eating more fruits and vegetables was just as effective as taking the tablets in terms of the acid-base balance. And compared to those who were doing neither, the control group basically, both groups were able to slow their kidney disease from getting worse over time. So fruits and vegetable was just as effective as the, the tablets. But those eating fruits and vegetables lowered their blood pressure, lost weight, and had these other additional benefits because it wasn't just a tablet, it was, it was a whole food. Let's talk a little bit about Fiji. Talk to us about the, the, the Fiji Dialysis Center, uh, the work that you do and, and so on. Yeah, so I moved here three years ago and I, and I, spent, I split my time between the, the major hospital, the CWM hospital in, in Suva, where I, I deal with inpatient care. So we look after patients with acute kidney injury, as we talked about, patients who need a dialysis. And then we also have the Fiji National Kidney Center. So this is a center that was just opened two years ago during my time, but really it's been in the works for many years uh, with the predecessor that was here before me. And it's now a center that offers specialist nephrology um, service to Fiji. Uh, it's the first sort of public, public specialist clinic. And it does also, in addition, have um, a dialysis unit. So we have, you know, 10 dialysis machines. We have a host of uh, a large amount of patients that come through and, and require dialysis. So these are patients who their kidneys have stopped working altogether, unfortunately, and uh, they require ongoing dialysis to, to survive, basically. Ideally, uh, they would pursue a kidney transplantation. So that's getting a kidney from someone else. Um, but uh, the realities of, of Fiji is that, um, unfortunately, kidney transplants are not done here in Fiji and they have to go overseas. And, and the average person who, the average clientele that we see in the public sector have a very low socioeconomic state. So um, they have difficulty even affording dialysis, let alone paying for, for flights and, and treatment overseas. So transplantation is uh, often difficult to achieve for these patients. And I believe end-stage kidney disease in Fiji is the incidence quite a bit higher than, say, in Australia. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, the, the prevalence of even just chronic kidney disease is 14% compared to 10%. So, you, you know, significantly higher. And then we don't have a lot of good data, but what data we do have um, suggests that about 700 to 900 people per year are diagnosed with end-stage kidney disease. So that's kidney failure requiring dialysis or 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 transplantation, so 700 to 900 per year are diagnosed, new new cases, so a, a huge amount. Compared to Australia, which are, the, the last data I saw was about 300, so up to three times as many cases per year, um, per million population. So it's a, it's a pre prevalent problem, and it all relates to the prevalence of type 2 diabetes and, and high blood pressure, the, the, last, the vast majority of cases. And it, and it, again, stems back to lifestyle choices and... Um, and uh, and dietary choices in particular. I don't think you'd have this at hand, but if you did, please do share. But with that same figure, that disparity in, in, in the high incidence amongst Fijians, would that translate to, say, Pacific Island um, communities and, say, Australia and New Zealand as well? Is that disparity also the same? Pacific Islanders have a higher disposition to having uh you know chronic kidney disease and then the obvious question why yep so i don't have nice figures for you but i can say for relative certainty that, that indigenous groups and including aboriginal and torres strait islanders and and I, I i don't know as much about new zealand but i i'm fairly i will say with good de good deal of confidence that that maori and, and other pacific island groups have a higher risk of of kidney disease in fact as you know, as risk factors go in terms of screening for kidney disease, we, we recommend doctors to test for kidney disease in someone with diabetes, someone with high blood pressure, someone with heart disease, someone with a family history, and anyone with an indigenous ethnicity. So it's a known and established risk factor for kidney disease. I guess part of it uh, relates to um, the socioeconomic environment that those indigenous groups live in, even in Australia. Part of it probably relates to some genetic component in terms of being at a higher genetic predisposition so that uh, difficult or poor lifestyle choices might affect these patients or these people uh, a bit more readily. 
Um, and so in Fiji, we have the Pacific Island group, but we also have a, a third of the country is Indo-Fijian, so Indian uh, heritage, subcontinent Indian heritage. And, and we know also that that, that genetic makeup or that ethnicity is also at high risk of these non-communicable diseases, of developing diabetes, of having high blood pressure, and therefore subsequently at high risk of developing kidney disease. Now, we've been lucky enough to have the Mali chef on the podcast previously, and he gave us a nice little insight into the plant-based movement in Fiji. Um, Season but... three, episode 14, Josh Lakemba. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> shout out to Josh. Um, but I'm interested, as a clinician, um, are you seeing the movement grow there and how responsive are patients to this way of eating as a medical approach for their, for their issues? Yeah, I'll have to check out that episode. Um, so I've, I, as I say, I've been here three years. I think that there is a bit of a groundswell. I mean, the first within the first few weeks of me arriving in Fiji, I attended the South Pacific Society of Lifestyle Medicine conference, and that was great. They had some international speakers and some local speakers, and they had representatives from other Pacific islands, Samoa and Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea. And I was just impressed that they had a lifestyle medicine uh, society that they were having conferences and webinars and education and training. Um, so, you know, just the mere fact that that's in place already, which took, I think, a long time in Australia to get off the ground, um, is, is good. Uh, they, there is beyond that, um, some groups, uh, I know of the Seventh Day Adventist, uh, church here who does a lot of, uh, lifestyle interventions. And, and I guess for those who have read a lot of literature, that may not come as a surprise because there are a lot of you know, studies in Seventh-day Adventist groups and, and, and it relates to their religious practice, but they promote um, a plant-based eating and they have this program that they're conducting called Live More Abundantly, which is sort of a, I don't know a great deal about it, but, um, but my understanding is that it's a sort of a modified CHIP program. So it's a program of lifestyle intervention and they're implementing that in 10 communities across Fiji, and it's trying to address non-communicable diseases. And I'm, when I was speaking to a colleague, uh, they said that they're, they're collecting data and that they're hoping to sort of publish some of that and, and let us know how what their outcomes have been. So, so there are, I think there are things going on in Fiji that are really encouraging. I think that the general population um, is very open to plant-based eating, I think the average person, partly because uh, as I mentioned, a third of the population is Indo-Fijian and, and they're already kind of open to vegetarian eating or vegan eating from, from either Hinduism or culturally. Um, uh, and I guess from the traditional Fijian Itoke ethnicity, um, you know, when I talk to patients, I talk about their, you know, their great grandfather or their grandfather or their ancestors or their, their family back in the villages and how they traditionally ate. And they, everyone acknowledges that the way that people eat nowadays or in the cities is not what their ancestors and their heritage used to eat. And I think that there, there is a, when you talk to them about it, I think that there, that if you can establish that connection, I think most people are open to the idea of, of eating like their, like their, their family did once upon a time. But, you know, it's still like Australia. You still have a lot of people who are, um, are reluctant or, for a range of different reasons, social, social reasons and cultural reasons um, that are reluctant to, to make changes. I guess the, the, the patients that I see often have advanced kidney disease. And when you tell somebody that their kidney function is 20% or 10%, they are more motivated to make change. Um, unfortunately, you know, the bang for buck is making changes earlier in the disease. Um, when it gets down to really, really low percentages um, the benefits are, are, are much less. And, and you, you know, these patients often, um, despite best efforts, do require uh, dialysis or, or kidney transplants. So, so I, I think people are motivated to make changes, but ideally it would be a, a lot earlier, a lot earlier in the disease course. What can we be doing from a day-to-day -day, uh, lifestyle habit to take care of our kidneys? What, what are some key things we can be implementing while we're listening to this episode? What should we be a bit more conscious of? Yeah, so I mean, I think everything I've said so far, I think the, the strongest evidence is diet that's really rich in those plant foods. So whole plant foods, I should say, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans and lentils, trying to therefore limit animal products and limit processed foods, especially added salt. 
or salt in general. Um, fluid intake for someone without really advanced kidney disease is generally recommended in, in good quantities, so two liters a day. Um, those who, if you have listeners who have significant kidney disease, they do need to be a little bit more careful and, and the doctors really should prescribe how much they're, they're drinking because when the kidney is not working well, you need to be a little bit careful. But for someone who doesn't have it or wants to prevent it, especially when you're having a hot day or going on a long run or doing exertional exercise, um, uh, make sure you're being, you know, keeping well, well hydrated. Um, and then the only other sort of thing I'd say is, I guess, whenever you're taking, being prescribed a medication, um, if you have kidney disease, you really need to be informing your pr practitioner that you have, have uh, CKD and, and the, the doses need to be changed or adjusted. And for those who don't have kidney disease, the main medication I would be wary of is um, anti-inflammatories, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So these are your Voltarins, your Nurofens, Indesid, because although here and there, aches and pains once or twice, fever here and there, it's relatively safe. But um, if you're using it consistently or regularly, it is associated with um, either developing kidney disease or worsening kidney disease. And I suppose this next question is going to be a leading question to give us an opportunity to um, give the upcoming conference a bit of a plug. Um, but how important is a multidisciplinary approach when you're working with people with chronic kidney disease? And do you have the opportunity in Fiji to work in with health professionals like exercise physiologists or dietitians or, you know, any of those allied health? Yeah, I think kidney disease is like everything else in modern medicine, that it should be approached with a, with a um, multidisciplinary team. I think there's increasing recognition that's the case. The more complex the disease, the more likely it is that having more people on the team is good and, and more perspectives. Um, with kidney disease, yeah, dietitian. You know, back home in Australia, we, we used to have a dietitian, uh, a psychologist. We'd have specialized nurses for different educations. Um, and those were the, really the core members and, and the medical team. Here in Fiji, uh, I have sort of roped in the dietitians <laughs> and provided some education and, they, and they, they have been attending as best as they can with, with staffing limitations and, and, and resource. Fiji is a resource limited, um, health resource limited area, so we have our limitations. But as best as we can, a dietitian uh, coming along and education, educating patients with us is really beneficial because they are able to provide more time with the patient um, and delve just specifically on the one issue of diet. I think the clinician is really important to, to say, you know, what the medical issues are and how diet will be helpful and maybe even delve into a little bit of detail. But, um, you know, the realities of day-to-day -day practices, I don't get the time, as much time as I'd like, to delve into some of the nitty-gritty uh, changes. And that's where really a dietitian can be really helpful, um, some of the subtleties. So, yeah, multidisciplinary team is, is really important and, and the more members on the team, the better. And speaking of which, you'll be on a multidisciplinary panel, I believe, um, at the Doctors for Nutrition Conference in Melbourne next year. Um, so for any listeners that might be interested, what can people expect from the conference and your presentation? And just give us a little inside scoop, if possible. <laughs> yep. So uh, as it stands, we'll, I'll be on a panel discussion with Dr. Gemma Newman and Holly Waters. And so the topic uh, it's going to be turning the tide on type 2 diabetes, unless something changes <laughs> with the title. And so I guess it's really going to be trying to address uh, diabetes um, and reversing diabetes. So I'll be you know, providing a bit of the introduction and the big, big picture. And I think Dr. Gemma Newman is really going to delve into um, how, uh, how people can address diabetes and reverse it. And, and Holly, I think, will be looking at some practical tips and practical approaches um, and so, yeah, I, I would really encourage everyone to, to attend the conference if they can. I, I, I attended back in, what was it, 2019 was it the first one? Mm, um, or it was, yeah. Yep. Well ago now. And uh, it was great, had a blast, brought my parents along. They loved it too. So the more the merrier, and um, I think everyone will get something out of it. Um, and, yes, I think it's all on the website. You can to find the details and sign up. Amazing. Uh, definitely a conference to look forward to. And uh, Anise, thank you so much. It's, uh, you know, the work you do 
is hugely important. Uh, like you say, you know, it, it's uh, chronic kidney disease is so prevalent. Yes, the, yet the majority are unaware of it. Um, so I think creating awareness is hugely, hugely important. Uh, not just to be aware of potentially having it, but also lifestyle changes we can undertake to prevent it. Uh, so you know, and you've certainly highlighted the, the the huge importance of a whole food, plant based way of eating. Uh, something we promote extensively on the show. So thank you so much for your time, uh, the incredible work you do within the community of, of, of Fijians. And uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, best of luck with the presentation at the uh, Doctors for Nutrition, Nutrition and Healthcare Conference uh, in February 2023. Thank you so much, Anise. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.